0: Um, good morning, and welcome to the Vineyard. We're super happy that you're here, and uh, I have really, uh, genuinely been looking forward to this talk this week. So, as we've been reading through, uh, Josh mentioned we've been we've been teaching our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians this summer. So we started this eight weeks ago, and here we are still doing it. And so I just want to give a little bit of review. To sort of set things in context for what we'll talk about today. So in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul explains the meaning of the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached. So we see that Jesus went around and, and his message that he preached was, you know, the, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's, that's the way that Jesus preached the gospel. And so what does that mean? That means that God the God who made the world and the God who loves you has come close. He cares deeply for his creation. He cares deeply for you. And so when Jesus says the kingdom is at hand, what he's saying is that God wants to be near to you and have an impact on your life. So this is the message that Jesus preaches, and Paul unpacks all these ideas about that gospel. In the first three chapters of Ephesians. He's talking technically about what the gospel means. And then we see sort of a shift because the gospel always works itself out in culture. What you believe is showing up in your private life. um, it, It shows up in your relationships. Culture, what we refer to as culture, is religion externalized. Culture is religion externalized. What do I mean by that? It's, it's what you believe about the world manifests itself in the world around you because that is the reality that you're living into. So what you believe shows up in your private life. What you believe, what you worship inevitably shows up in sort of cultural artifacts in your home. What I mean by cultural artifacts is things like um, behaviors, attitudes, actions, what you celebrate, what you affirm, what you value. Those are the things that sort of show up in our private lives because of what we believe about God. And and so how we understand society and work and family, all of those things follow how we understand God. And so in the last three chapters of Ephesians, Paul sort of turns his attention to these things. So he finishes explaining what the gospel is, and then he starts to explain, here's how we ought to live in light of that gospel. So we've made our way all the way through chapter 4 and chapter 5, and we're starting in on chapter 6 today. But I just want to frame this up a little bit by acknowledging that we have a problem as people. And as people who follow Jesus, we believe that that problem is fundamentally what we would call sin. It's the thing that entered the world when humans decided to live apart from the way that God designed us to live. And that sin creeps into every area and every aspect of our lives. And so the reason that it's important to talk about these these things about how we live, like our marriages and our relationships with our kids and our relationships with money and our relationships with work, is because sin has crept into those areas. And it's important for us to invite God's perspective into the ways that we view these areas of our lives. And so, just by way of, I don't know, sort of a disclaimer or a warning, um, today, we're going to talk about parenting, and we're going to talk about work. And specifically, we're even going to look at a text where Paul uses the language of masters and bondservants. And I just want to say to you, you know, the Bible is full of things because it's in itself is kind of an artifact from another culture that can be hard for us. And sometimes these are hard texts. And these are often texts that preachers and preaching teams will just skip right over because there's like maybe a little bit too much to explain in there. And I just want to say to you all, one, I think it's very important that we set these things in context and we read the things straight through. So we're not skipping over these passages today. The other thing that I think is really important is that when we start to talk about things like parenting and what we think about work, there are some things that are like core and central and essential to our faith. And then there are some things that we're figuring out along the way. And I want to encourage all of us to be kind to each other. Really, I want to encourage all of us to be kind to each other. Because what what we're doing is we're trying to follow Jesus. We're trying to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And in all that, we're working with a Bible that just doesn't quite spell it all out point for point exactly the way that you're supposed to do things. We're all trying to figure it out. Okay? And so throughout the course of this talk this morning, I'm going to offer some suggestions. I'm going to have some ideas that I've brought to the table. Those ideas, they might not be the same as your ideas. And you might have some ideas that are very different from the ideas that the people sitting across the aisle from you have. And, and I just, it's so important in church life that we're, that we're kind to each other as we work this out. Do you all agree Yeah, there's a quote that I really love um, from an English um, Puritan scholar. His name is Richard Baxter. He said this, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, diversity, in all things, charity. In, In other words, those creedal, central things that are essential to our faith, it's crucial that we're in agreement about those things. There's some things that are very, very important that we agree upon. In the things that are non-essential, that is the things that sort of vary about the Christian faith, depending on where we live and when we live and who we are, because those things do exist, it's, it's, it's appropriate and it's even important that we have diversity. And finally, at all times, over all issues, treating with one another with kindness is paramount. That's what he means when he says charity in all things charity. He's saying that, hey, look, as we try to follow Jesus together, it's important that we look at our neighbors, that we look at other families, that we look at people from places that we aren't from, that we look at people who have different experiences of life than we do, and and we have a charitable view of them as they work out these same things. Does that make sense? Good. So my experience this week, as I've sort of prepared, and my hope for all of us is that... um, we would find ourselves willing to change, to pivot, uh, and to really ultimately admit that none of us know it all. It's very important. And and what we want to do is we want to ask ourselves better questions in light of what the Holy Spirit is doing in each of our lives about parenting and work. So that's that's my hope for this morning is that really... More than anything, God encourages us in the direction of asking better questions about these things, looking deep within and and saying to ourselves, you know, Jesus, how would you have me live faithfully in this area of life in light of the powerful truth of the gospel of the kingdom, the truth that the God who made the world has come close and cares about what happens in your life. That's the principle that's underneath all of this. So let me pray for us, and we'll start in with the text. Come, Holy Spirit. God, we love your presence. We love your word. We love when your power moves among us. Thank you, Lord, for for what you're already doing in this room, whether it's healing our bodies or healing our minds or speaking a new word to us. And God, I ask that as we look at a couple of hard texts this morning, that you would even ask us new questions, that, that new things, we would start to turn new things over in our minds about what it looks like to live faithfully before you. And, and I pray, too, where we've had painful experiences or where even some of these texts have been held over us, that we would be freed from those understandings, and that you would give us your, your view of our lives, God, we pray that your kingdom would come, that you would come close, you'd be with us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Cool. So let's start with the first part of the text. So if you're following along in your devices, you can look at uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Ready? Actually, I want to say this. I want to say something before I read this. So last week, Debbie talked about marriage. This week, we're talking about parents children and masters and bondservants, to use the language that Paul uses. There is something really significant about the way that this letter is written. And so before I even start reading it, I want to point something out to you. By addressing when we read the passage about marriage, Paul addresses wives first, and then he addresses children first, and then in the next part he addresses bond servants first. And if we if we if we read it too quick, we'll miss what's significant about this. When Paul writes this letter, this letter was intended to kind of be like. Oh, sorry, my my mic was messed up. To kind of be like paraded around the churches and read to all of these churches for the sake of their instruction. And Paul was what we call an apostle. And an apostle was a Roman military office. So we've talked about this here in in this church before, but if you're not familiar with this idea that, that the Romans, that Caesar would actually send apostles into cities to make them seem more like Rome. So when Rome would conquer a place, apostles would actually go into that place and it would be their job to sort of read the edict of Caesar and tell people how to live as Romans and then sort of reform society and reform culture to look more like Rome. Now, when those apostles would be sent into a place, they were sent into that place to address the men living in that place the adult men living in that place because adult men were essentially the only people who were seen as full human beings. When Paul writes this letter and he first addresses wives and then he addresses children and then he addresses bond servants, Paul is very intentionally subverting the culture of Rome in that day. It was unheard of for a Roman apostle to go into a place and speak directly to children who were considered to have little or no value in society. It was completely unheard of for one of these apostles to go in and directly address the women in the crowd. That never would have happened. And it was totally way out of bounds for an apostle to go into a place and first address bond servants, So what Paul is doing already just in the way that he's structuring this letter is he's speaking to the unaddressed in society, the people who had been oppressed and pushed down and told that they were unimportant, and he immediately elevates them into a place of importance by addressing them in his letter first. That's huge. That's a really big deal. So with that, let's go ahead and read. Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So we strive to set a pattern as followers of Jesus in our lives. Out of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, flows all of our relationships. Debbie talked about this idea as it pertains to marriage last week. See, the Trinity is a fascinating thing. It's a mysterious thing, how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interact with one another. Scholars use this Latin word to describe the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's called perichoresis. And that's not important for you to remember. What's important for you to remember is that what that word describes is like a divine song and dance that's been going on between the three of them for all of time. It's, it's, a, it's a love song. It's a divine love song between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that's go- been going on since before the foundations of the world. And every single relationship in our lives is intended to be born of that love song that's being sung between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, and, and you know the way that our marriages are meant to point to Christ, which is a great mystery, Paul says, in the prior chapter, We're preaching a sermon to our kids because of the way that we put this divine love song on display. How do you disagree? How do you forgive? Your kids are watching this over and over and over and over again. And lest you put undue pressure on yourself, our relationships were not intended to be perfect. That there's, there's allowance for that. We're aware of the fact that they're not going to be perfect. And so our imperfections in our relationships, if we'll let them be, can be signposts that point to this perfect divine relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even the way that we handle our shortcomings can be a signpost that points that way. And so before we talk about kids, I just think there's an encouragement here from Paul, setting all these relationships in context with our relationship with God to live before your kids with integrity regardless of the stage of life that you're in. And again, how we work that out, there's a lot of ways that we can work that out. But it's crucial to live before our kids with integrity regardless of the stage of life that we're in because we believe that our relationships as parents, one parent to another, is a relationship that puts on display the love of God. And if you find yourself in a situation where maybe you're a single parent, or maybe at some point in your journey you've, you've dealt with divorce, and that's an element of your story, there are still ways for you in your relationships, whether it's with your former spouse or just with the people who are close to you in your life, to put on display the love of God. Okay, so you, this, this, this instruction doesn't pass you by. It's not something that you're excluded from. It's actually something that you have an even greater opportunity to put on display in the face of adversity, where ordinarily we might look at a situation and say, there's, there's brokenness there, that's a bust. That's not true. That's not true. You actually have the opportunity to also put the love of God on display in the relationships that you steward in your life. As a part of loving obedience to Christ, children obey within the limits that the Lord gives. This is a really interesting way that Paul chooses to say this because he doesn't just say, children obey, right? There's more, there's actually more words in this passage. He gives a little bit more context to what he means. Paul writes, obey your parents in the Lord. He explains that obedience is right, not just because Christian culture thinks so, not as an unconditional commandment for any and all reasons, but he actually gives a really good reason. He doesn't say, children obey because I said so. He says, for reverence and love, for the sake of understanding the character of God, is why children obey their parents. See, we talked about sin at the very beginning. Sin is this disease that affects all of our relationships, and on a fundamental level, I think many of our relational problems could be boiled down to the fact that we just are unable to take instruction from other people. We're unable to even wrap our minds around the fact that somebody else might know more than us. And this is true for no one greater than children, because when we start out, we haven't even been introduced to the idea that people might know more than us. And so as a spiritual principle, it's really important to be able to take instruction from people who know more about life than we do. You know, one of the greatest joys of my life for the last number of years has been seeking out older mentors in my life. And, and I now have a list of maybe five or six um, older men in my life. Anytime I have an important decision to make or anytime I'm uncertain about what to do in a particular situation, I run it by all of them. And, and they'll all give me advice. And sometimes they'll all give me the same advice. And sometimes one of them gives me advice that seems really good to me, but I know that maybe what the other one said is actually what's right. It's a fascinating thing. It's a fun, it's a fun thing to, to embrace living in community with other people, understanding that they understand things about the world that you don't. And that's the spiritual principle that we're talking about when we're talking about children obeying their parents. It's more than just taking orders. It's more than just understanding how authority works. And that is an important aspect of our relationship with our parents. But the thing at the very center of all this is learning to understand, to know, and acknowledge that God knows infinitely more about the way the world works than we do and when we as children, for reverence and love and for the sake of understanding the character of God, obey our parents, more of that is revealed to us. Of course, they have their idiosyncrasies like we all do, but I have good parents. And watching my, my mom and dad care for his dad as he died, was one of the most powerful and transformational experiences of my entire life. Because I had a rough relationship with my parents for a few years. But when it came down to it, the, the example of the love of God that they put on display, caring for my grandfather, for my dad's dad, as his life slowly slipped away, was something that I had never seen from my parents before. And it, and it powerfully demonstrated to me what it means to honor your father and mother. Because when Paul says to obey your parents, he roots it in, in this command to honor your father and mother. And that goes far beyond just the simple idea of obedience to what they say. Honoring your father and mother is, is a deep reverence for what they have meant to your life. Learning to honor and love my parents as an adult has been a journey that has shaped me, formed me as significantly as almost any other. If you are a child of parents, raise your hand. I'm worried that a few of you didn't raise your hands, <laughs> but it's fine. So, so look, it's tricky, right? It's tricky to honor your parents in life And in death, right? Because some of us have parents who aren't along with us, you know, for the ride anymore. I mean, something that's deeply and profoundly impacted my family is my my father-in-law having taken his own life a few years ago. And even so, we found powerful and meaningful ways to honor him. And, and I think that as we do that, and, and bear in mind, that's one of the hardest situations to bring forgiveness into. That's one of the hardest situations to, to hold a perspective of honor, right? Because that feels to us like a very dishonorable decision. But the gold that I believe is going to be deposited in my family's life for our choice to honor him, I think is, is immeasurable. I don't think we'll even understand for a very long time, long into old age, how significant that decision is going to be. And I would just encourage you, you know, sometimes, some of us have, have parents who are, who are very hard to love. We have parents who have hurt us. And I just want to encourage you with this. Rich Nathan, the founding pastor of Vineyard Columbus, said this in a message years and years ago, and I wrote it down and I come back to it often, and I, and I, I counsel people with this often because I think it's wisdom. Um, he said, at a minimum, you can honor the less than perfect parent by refusing to fight with them. If you are regularly drawn into argument, you have the power to stop that. You can honor your father and mother by refusing to fight with them. And, and so, you know, what I want to do is I want to paint, I want to give examples of, of all forms of this relationship because it's such a crucial thing for us to bear in mind regardless of where, where we find ourselves on the journey with our parents. There are a lot of so-called Christian parenting books that have been written about this commandment to honor your father and mother. But never once have I heard a... Um, a Christian study that works really hard to get at the meaning of the thing that Paul said next. And I think this is ironic because the next passage is, is addressed to parents. See, the first one is addressed to children. And most of the time, parents kind of hyper-focus on the first one and they repeat it and they, and they sort of, you know, make it their main concern to understand what this first thing is. But I, it's important to know, you know, one it's a simple thing that our kids can actually read from the Bible. Like, I mean, it's a pretty simple sentence, you know, obey your father and mother, right? They can read that and they can actually internalize that commandment for themselves as well as being taught by us, right? But then the very next thing Paul says, it's actually directly addressing parents. And so I just wonder if maybe there should be more parenting books and conferences on the thing that we read next. He says, and fathers do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the lord it's very important that we understand that in paul's context fathers could verbally and physically abuse their children with little or no recourse that was the that was the cultural norm that your kids were just sort of your, your property, and you could just sort of handle them however you felt was appropriate. If a father so chose, his children could be sold off as slaves or even executed at his whim if, if he felt like they weren't meeting his standard. So this is the culture that Paul is writing into. We have to bear that in mind, that what he's saying is, is scandalous. It really is something that people would have heard and said, Don't provoke my children to anger? Who's who's the parent? Have you ever heard stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. It would have invoked a similar response from the people of Paul's day. What he writes here turns the world upside down. What does it mean to provoke a child to anger? I don't think that's something that I've ever heard people explain well. And as I've kind of studied that passage this week, I've, I've just jotted down a few thoughts. And so as I read this list, what I want to do is I want to just remind you that this isn't a list of rules. This isn't a list of things, you know, that you must adhere to in your life. But what I would say is just if I say one of these things and it kind of strikes you in a unique way, I didn't even put it up on a slide because I don't want you to write them all down. I just want you to, if you're, if you're taking notes, maybe you just write something down that seems like, yeah, that, that might be for me, okay? So here's a few things I came up with. Failing to remember that our kids are kids will provoke our children to anger. When our rules are inconsistent and our consequences are harsh, we'll provoke our children to anger. Imposing discipline on kids without living a disciplined life ourselves will provoke our children to anger, because children can actually sense hypocrisy from a young age. And so if we want our kids to live a particular way and follow particular principles and live up to particular standards that we don't, they can smell that. Not expressing love to them. Now, I don't know about you all, but I grew up in a very rural conservative environment, and I know many men in my life who have, who have said this very thing. They say, I don't tell my wife and kids I love them because they can see it by my actions. I don't say the words, I love you, because I work hard for them and they can tell. That's miserable. That is miserably bad. And if you think that, in this room, I mean, I, okay, I know I said be kind. To, I, I'm, I, look, like, you have, you have to tell the people you love that you love them. And if you find yourself unable to do that, we will have prayer teams in the back and it's really not a joke. You must be able to say, I love you. To your wife, to your children, to your closest friends. It's vital. It's vital. Being heavy-handed when kids make simple mistakes. Bree and I have this observation, this ongoing sort of, it's not funny, but we kind of laugh at it, vacation parents. Like, when we were in Wisconsin a few weeks ago, we were at a gas station and there was a van full of kids, not full of kids, maybe two or three kids, and the dad is pumping gas and he's screaming at his kids over his shoulder back into the van, you know, shut up, right? No, okay, that, what, the, what is that? That is heavy handed when kids make simple mistakes. His kids are in the van acting like kids and he's screaming at them. That's provoking your children to anger. When we discourage and rarely encourage them, what would your kids say is most important to you? Their grades, their performance, their careers, their physical appearance, their weight, their relationship with Jesus. See, there's, there are all these things that we elevate to places of importance And what we end up doing is we inadvertently discourage our kids without encouraging them because what we're trying to do is we're trying to fit them into a standard that they just can't fit into because that's not who they are. They need encouraged. Living hypocritical lives and not confessing sin or apologizing to them. You know, one one of the most impactful things for kids is to be apologized to by their parents, for their parents to actually acknowledge sin in their own lives and confess it before their children. What a powerful testament to the gospel of the kingdom. Because, you know, our kids are people. They were born people, and they always will be people. And so even though there is a power dynamic between parents and children, the truth remains that children are just as much people created in the image of God as you are. And so it is just as important for us to confess sin and apologize before peers as as it is for us to do that before our children. And if we fail to ever do that, I speak with people all the time who say, "My mom never ever apologized to me for anything ever. I can't I can't ever remember my mom saying I'm sorry." What a poor example. And so I just want to encourage you if you're thinking to yourself, "Man, I don't know if I've ever done that. Like, I don't know if I have ever gotten myself in a rhythm of like acknowledging sin before my kids. And, and obviously there are like degrees to all this, right? I'm not going to sit down with my you know 15-month-old daughter and confess my most grievous sins to her. Like, that's not what I'm talking about, okay? So don't, don't get it twisted, right? It's really important that we just, we're, we're, we're setting an example. We're creating a pattern in our lives that our kids will see, and the last one I put on my list is inadvertently giving them the law and no gospel. Because God the Father, our Heavenly Father, has extended to us a covenant of grace in spite of our mistakes. And so I'm just going to be honest. Like I think my, my hope, my goal as a parent, I'm just starting, right? And I'm sure that many of you have already thought that thought as I've been talking, is um, is to, is to Let my kids off the hook every once in a while. Because I know that my father in heaven has done that for me. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know, I've I've understood what it is that I've done wrong. And there are consequences far greater than the consequences that have borne themselves out in my life that I could have reaped for some of the things that I've done in my life. And they haven't come to me. Because God God views me through the lens of grace and not the law. And so when we inadvertently uh, give our kids the law and no gospel, we're depriving them of having that experience with their earthly fathers and mothers. There's no category. I've already touched on this a little bit, so I won't spend a lot of time here, but there's no category in Christian parenting that has inactive, passive fathers. And neglecting the responsibility of teaching kids is not an option. So don't hear anything that I'm saying as a as a passive, you know, you're off the hook for for anything, right? But but I will say this, generations of fathers in this country, see we talk a lot in the church about fatherlessness, but there's another thing that we don't talk about. Generations of fathers in this country have abdicated the responsibility to be present and emotionally intelligent toward their children. And Parenting has been delegated to mothers, and fathers have been deemed those who dole out punishment. And I, I just want to say, I don't. In my view, that's not the biblical model. In my view, we have a heavenly Father who is um, emotionally intelligent and present to our needs, who speaks with us, who who has an understanding way about him, and isn't uh, just absent from our lives. Okay, and so. What Paul is saying is to be fathers who reflect the Father. And I just want to say a quick word to anyone in the room who struggles to think of God as Father because of your relationship or lack thereof with your earthly father. Um, This is a quote from the philosopher James Miller. And I was so fascinated to read it because if you Google James Miller, he was an extremely liberal philosopher. And you know on the surface, when you read a lot of his writing, it appears as though, like, there's no possibility that this guy was even a follower of Jesus. But this quote is one of the most, like, to the point and effective statements that I've ever heard about this, this conundrum that we're in with our earthly fathers. He says, one's heart goes out to the children of such fathers, fathers who fell short of, you know, living and, and setting an example of what God the Father is like. Those of us who are fathers ourselves know that we too are far from perfect, But God the Father is not called Father because he copies earthly fathers. He is not some pumped-up version of your dad. To transfer the failings of earthly fathers to him is quite simply a misstep. Instead, things are the other way around. It is that all human fathers are supposed to reflect him. Only where some do that well, others do a better job of reflecting the devil. All that is to say... If you're hearing me and you're thinking to yourself, I did not have this experience with my dad. Or you're a father yourself and you feel like I failed in many regards. The, the kingdom is at hand. Oh. Jesus wants to draw near to you and meet you in that place. And so we're going we're gonna to just do that in, in some prayer ministry a little bit later on. But we have to keep moving to get through the rest of this passage. So hard shift. Now we're going to the second part. Having talked about the first portion, parents and children, I want to turn to the last five verses of our passage. Um, But before we do that, I want to just take a second to qualify um, the rest of what we're about to read. Because before we read it, it's very important that we set in context what Paul is talking about here. The theologian N.T. Wright wrote this. He says, Slavery and servitude were a massive part of the structure of the Roman Empire, with some estimating there were upwards of 60 million slaves or bondservants at the time of Christ. In a city like Ephesus, a full one-third of the population may have been bondservants. Paul could no more envisage a world without slavery than we can envisage a world without electricity." Though the practices of slavery varied throughout the Roman Empire, the practice during the time of the New Testament was different from the practice of slavery in the antebellum American South in some very important ways. And so I just want to address these things before we read the rest of the passage. Being a bondservant in ancient Rome was based on economics, not race. Bondservants were more a social class, than an exploited group of people. So they were not a particular ethnic group of people that had been selected for servitude in the Roman Empire. It was based on class. It was usually not lifelong. Bond servants could work for compensation, most of them were actually paid, and they could gain freedom through release or payment. And this was very common. Most of the time, bond servanthood was temporary. Many bond servants um, were such by their own choice this was a common means to pay a debt in society. Um, in some cases, they chose to be bondservants because the situation generally, gen- genuinely offered them contentment. So the jobs that we think of in our minds as blue-collar jobs, shopkeepers and people who make things, craftspeople, that sort of thing, all those people in the Roman Empire would have been bondservants, okay? Okay. And bondservants were part of the structure of society at nearly all levels. They were often teachers, secretaries, and doctors. So I hope that this gives you a little bit of perspective about what Paul's talking about here when he's addressing bondservants. He's not talking about a situation that's like what took place in this country for the first 200 years. Paul teaches Christians how they should live within this existing, culturally unquestioned structure— so he's not speaking to the, uh, you know, the 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 value, or uh, saying, you know, condoning this practice. He's just saying, look, this is the reality that you're living in. Given that reality, here are some things to bear in mind. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul directly condemns practices that are more closely reflective of what we would call shadow slavery. Uh, in the American South. So it's actually really interesting. We're going to read this passage out of the ESV. And the reason I like to read it out of the ESV is because when Paul's talking about bond servants, they translate that word bond servants. And when Paul's talking about practices of slavery that exploit people, the ESV translators actually trans that, translate that slavery. So when you're reading the ESV, you'll see both terms come up. And it's because they've made a distinction between the things that Paul is talking about. So just some interesting food for thought. It's important to remind ourselves when we read this stuff in the New Testament that address and deal with cruel and sinful practices um, that the long-suffering work of Christians is found at the heart of every single movement to overcome the enslavement and exploitation of people worldwide since Jesus' day. There is not a single instance of people working against other people being exploited that excludes the church. It's very important. The church and Christians have been at the center for the dignity of human beings since the very beginning. That doesn't let the church off the hook for crimes that they've been complicit with. And there are ugly truths that it's important for us to face. Both things can be true at the same time. So that's all I'll say about that. Now we'll read the passage. Paul says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does... This he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So again, by directly addressing bondservants in this passage first, Paul is speaking to a people group that is never publicly spoken to. Very subversive thing that he does. And he directly connects their work and their position four times in this passage to God. He says they are to serve their earthly masters in a way that honors their heavenly master. We're not talking about hard, cruel, unusual labor, we're talking about ordinary jobs that you or I could probably imagine ourselves doing in this passage. He's saying, that service to an earthly master, we are to rend that unto them as though they were the Lord. He gives them three new realities for their work. And this is where we kind of make the jump into our own lives. These are the three things that it's important for us to bear in mind as we work in society. The first one is a new motivation, Paul encourages them toward sort of a purity and a sincerity of heart. He wants them to be whole in their work. He says the work that you're doing, it's not for eye service. It's not for people pleasing. It's for the sake of working because as human beings, we were made to work. We find gratification in doing good work. The second thing he says is he, he gives them a new work ethic. He says it's on it's good honest work before the Lord. It's not work that's intended to be people pleasing. I just have any of you ever worked to please a boss? Like have any of you ever been in a situation where you were just doing your work to try to please your boss in the workplace? And how did that go? It, they're usually hard to satisfy, right? I worked for Chris at Skyline for 5 long years. <laughs> And, no, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Chris and Josh are wonderful bosses. They're fantastic people to work for. I did have a hard boss once, though. I had a terrible boss. Uh, in one of my first jobs, I was, a, I was a caddy, and I cleaned golf carts and golf clubs at the private country club that was close to my house. And um, my boss was terrible. And he and I have discussed this since then, So I'll use his name because it's kind of part of the story. His name was Asa. And I don't know if you remember, but in the Bible, there in in the Old Testament, there's kind of an obscure story about a king named Asa. And does anyone know how Asa died? He had a disease in his foot. It says he had a disease in his foot. And so when I was working at the country club, I had just became a Christian. I had just started reading the Bible. And I was like, over the moon about reading the Bible, right? And I hated working for this guy. I mean, he was awful. He was the worst. And so I'm reading the Bible, and, and, and just as I'm reading the Bible, I get this text on the work group chat that Asa has gout, and he can't come to work. And sure enough, later on in the day, I'm reading First Kings or Second Kings, wherever that is, and King Asa dies from a disease in his foot. And I thought to myself, hallelujah. It's happening. It didn't happen. And Ace is a good guy. He's a good guy in the community, and we, know we just had some differences. But he was hard to please. And the whole point, there is a point to telling this story is that, you know, he had a very particular way that he wanted things. We had about 100 golf carts. We would park them in this barn at night, and I remember the first time I ever closed the golf course with him. I parked all the golf carts in there, and he came out with a tape measure. And I'll never forget, they're supposed to be precisely four inches between the front right and front left tire, uh, you know, between carts. And so he came out with a tape measure and he went down the rows and he started measuring the space between the tires of the golf carts. And he got all the way to the very last one in the back that was parked behind all of the other golf carts. And he said, these are far too far apart. Pull them all out and do it again. And I spent like three hours pulling 100 golf carts out of this barn, putting all of them back, taking his tape measure, measuring the four inches myself over and over and over and over again. When we work to please earthly masters, it's, it's, an, it's an unfulfilling enterprise. It really is, even if they're good ones. When we're able to go into the workplace, whatever our work is, or even if you're retired, you know, whatever your work is around around your home or in the community, maybe you volunteer somewhere, maybe you do some other kind of work. When you're able to do that work before God, as though you're doing that work for God, there is a spiritual principle there that gets at the heart of who we are as human beings. We were made to do work and we were made to do good work. And it feeds our souls when we do work as though it's unto God. I love the way that Timothy Keller talks about work. He says, Christians have been set free to enjoy working. If we begin to work as if we were serving the Lord, we will be freed from both overwork and underwork. Neither the prospect of money and acclaim, nor the lack of it, will be our controlling consideration. Work will be primarily a way to please God by doing his work in the world for his name's sake. And the last thing I want to say here is to those of you who who manage people. Maybe you find yourself more in the position of the master, not so much the bondservant, when you read this text. Like bondservants, masters must treat those under their authority as they would treat Christ. That's Paul's point here. And so if you're a manager of people, I want to challenge you to ask yourself in the workplace, do I manage people the way I would manage Christ as though he were working for me, working in my office or working at my restaurant or on my, on my line or in the factory or whatever it is. They must not threaten or intimidate those under their authority, but treat them with dignity and respect. And so as we draw attention to our heavenly master, we are reminded that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so that's going to work itself out in all sorts of different ways. It's depending on where you work and what kind of work you do. But how can you bring that perspective into your work? That's a lot. We're just going to crash land. So I would love for everybody to just stand with me. I know people are always like, you got to have like a clean, neat conclusion and three points that people remember. I'm like, well, not today because that was a lot of Bible. So here's what we're going to do. Worship team, you can come on up. And prayer teams, you can make your way to the back. And we're going to sing some songs together. We're going to worship, and we just invite you to, to engage with that um, however, however is best for you, whether that's standing or laying down on the floor or, you know, making your way to the back or to the front or out into the aisles or whatever it is that you have to do. Uh, and as we worship, our prayer people are going to be back there. I want to pray a few things for you, and then I want to just give you a few prompts that maybe if there's some things that are turning around in your mind, I would encourage you to make your way to the back and get prayer at any point uh, during worship. So let's pray and, and then we'll, we'll worship together. Come Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for your, your good direction, for your wisdom. You are the only wise king, Jesus. And so I pray that um, if, if one iota of what I just said was of any value, that you would water that seed and that you would cause us to ask new questions and, and have some new considerations about how we live in light of the power and the beauty of the gospel of your kingdom. And so we do, we pray right now that your kingdom would come here in this room as it is in heaven. And where there are things on our minds, whether it's ways that we've parented, ways that we've been parented, struggles with our kids. Maybe there are people who are alienated from their kids for one reason or another. God, I just ask that your presence would come and minister to those things as we worship. And, and I just would encourage you all, if there are specific things that came to mind, even as I said that, uh, we would love to pray with you. We would love to partner with you there. And I want to pray too that if you find your work to be difficult, if right now you are serving a cruel earthly master, or if you just feel like your work doesn't have much meaning in it, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us about our work, that you would speak a word of encouragement to us about our work, that you would even speak words of direction about our work through one another, that if you have another place for us, or if you have another capacity for us to to work in, just pray that you would release those things into our lives. In Jesus' name.